Welcome to the Audit Room, the number one podcast where you can share your audit experiences, ask questions, and get expert coaching and feedback. Episodes are recorded live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Chicago Time, 12 noon New York, and 6 p.m. Berlin. So be sure to check the show notes to join our next meeting and get all your auditing questions answered. Now, here are our hosts, Trent Russell and Tracy Marquardt. This podcast is brought to you by Green Skies Analytics, the services firm that helps auditors leapfrog up the analytics maturity model. Their approach for launching audit analytics programs with a series of proven quick win analytics will guarantee the results worthy of the analytics hype. Whether your audit team needs a data strategy, methodology, governance, literacy, or anything else related to audit and analytics, visit greenskiesanalytics.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Quality Assurance Communication. If you're an internal auditor who wants to take your own or your team's communication skills and audit results to the next level, who wants to create more for yourself, your team, and your organization, no matter where you work around the globe, then check out Quality Assurance Communication at qacommunication.com. This is the audit room on Zoom. We are live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. That's 11 a.m. Chicago time. I'm your co-host and moderator, Trent Russell, founder of Green Skies Analytics, the go-to place for all things internal audit analytics. And joining me as always is my co-host, Tracy Marquardt. I am Tracy Marquardt, Europe's leading audit communication consultant and also responsible for and partnered with the ARC Institute for Serious Business Games in Canada. And I'm super happy today to be able to introduce Rick Royball. And our topic today is finding fraud. And, you know, Rick is a certified fraud examiner, fraud expert witness, vendor due diligence he's involved in. Um, the list goes on. So I'm really excited to hand it over to you, Rick. And maybe you can tell us a little more about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you guys today. So just real brief background. I actually started off teaching over in Eastern Europe. And believe it or not, I, ha I have a degree uh, in Russian. And uh, yeah. Forgot about There's it. There's a topic. There's another topic, right? So I've, I was in the Soviet Union at one time. I was in former Soviet Union. So it's a crazy place. Uh, anyway, so BA in Russian, an MA in linguistics, and then an MBA in finance and accounting. That's why I kind of finally found my niche. And it took a little bit of a uh, of uh, time to get through there as well. I was an internal audit with an oil and gas company and my boss at the time, you know, we were, you know, we would finish up with an audit and he'd say, all right, just dig into paid history and see what you find. And it started off with that. So where I was got really serious about uh, vendor auditing, vendor fraud. Perfect. And Tal's with us. Um might be of interest, Rick is the oil and gas vendor roundtable leader. Mm -hmm. um, and I know Tal's in that, that industry, so that might be something to keep an eye out for. Also a, a plug for the oil and gas vendor roundtable. We'll link to that in the show notes also. Uh, Rick and crew do a fantastic job of putting on webinars and, and bringing uh, those people together. Um, the first thing I want to talk about though, and it's timely as somebody asked me literally this question yesterday, uh, surrounding fraud. And so they've been undergoing this fraud investigation. It's been going on for a few weeks and it seems like it's just, it's never going to end. Um, the folks at the top are, you know, pounding their fists. When are we going to have this wrapped up? And, and the investigators are like, well, we got to dig into this. We got to dig into this. And so uh, from that, the question was, when, when do you know that a fraud investigation is done? It seems like something you could spend 
forever on. Yeah, it's it's true. Uh, you know, the very first time you hear about the case, um, and the attorneys walk walk you through, you know, what's happening, you know, the story that they know, um, and then they kind of walk you through the complaint that's been served to the to to the defendants. So it is easy to kind of go down rabbit trails. That's for sure, because you see a document and all of a sudden that reminds you about another document that reminds you about something else that you heard. And then you, you know, next thing you know, you've had, you know, five or six more work papers and, and they're like, okay, I got the story, I think. And, but that's, that's what's really difficult is just kind of walking down those paths because, you know, we're all analytical to some, to some extent, and it makes sense for us to kind of get some completeness in it. The problem is, is that, um, you know, the, the client is, the, you know, the clock's going, the money's going up, that kind of thing. So it's, it makes a really difficult and kind of an uneasy situation because the economics may not be so good anymore for a, a case like that. Right. The bottom line is, though, and really what you want to do is when you get to the point where um, you feel like you're there, is of course it ends and memorializes itself in a report and uh, an expert report but it goes back to the allegations and that is can you prove it or can you disprove it you know you have to answer those questions if you can to some you know certainty then you've done your job and that really should be it um, of course it could go on because maybe the client or maybe somebody else says you know you need to continue on but really to, to answer your other question is it's when you can say, yes, I've answered the questions out of the allegation. It makes sense. Um, I, I feel good about where I stand on it because, you know, what ends up, you know, culminating in is you sitting on stand uh, potentially and then answering those questions. And are you able to do it? So, yeah. Does I'd like to question? jump in on that. <laughs> Sorry, I, I mean, I think it's a great answer. I, I have an instance of a client and they have um, uh, an investigations team as part of the, the, big, the wider audit team. And they had such pushback from the audit client for so long. And it was like four or five months in and they couldn't get the information they wanted. And um, there was a, a reason for it. And then they had brought in an external person to do some of the investigation and they botched all of the relationships. Mm. And so at that point, um, when the audit team took over, um, there was, there was absolutely zero cooperation. And so after a couple of months of this, they, you know, I was talking to my client and um and because uh, he didn't know what to do. And I said, look, just issue your report. Yeah, because how long can you go on? Yeah, just issue the findings that you have, draw the conclusions that you can and, and, and move on and let them deal, you know, respond to the other side once the report is issued. What do you think of that advice? Was it terrible advice? Hmm. No, 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 that's, that's really good advice. Um, be, you know, we have to get to that point where we just, you know, we can't continue on. We, we know we can't, um, but, you know, presenting it to the other side, so to speak, or presenting it back to the client, it gives them a chance to go, okay, all right, now I can either respond to it in a way that something needs to be changed or respond to it by saying, all right, we're ready to go take it, you know, issue it, disclose it to the other side. So 
Yeah. Because I, I'm, I'm the, you know, auto communication expert. And I talk to my client about, well, have you approached them this way? Have you tried that way? What about that way? You know, what have you tried? What do you think will work next? And it was just like a zero sum. So, yeah. you know, at some point yeah. you've got to move on, I think. Well, I think you also are touching on another point and that is kind of the relationships that are kind of going on uh, during this. And it is so important to be, um, you know, in my position is to be listening to what, you know, who is my client? It, it's, you know, the attorney to go to the client and I really need to listen to what they are saying, you know, and continually staying in contact as much as possible. Um, but just, you know, they're paying my bills, so to speak. So I right. need to be able to just to um, be cooperative, you know, you know, find, you know, if I need to answer it or talk about this way, I'm going to do it because they're asking me to do it that way. So it's always good to, to be, to have a non-frictious relationship. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Perfect. I'm going to now, uh, we'll call this segment story time. I think everybody likes a good story especially a good fraud story. Uh, and so Rick, I'll throw it to you here in a second, but I did want to say um, for those that are interested, we talk fraud here sometimes, but if you are like a fraud person, um, the Friday Fraudsters is a LinkedIn live event every Friday um, with Rob Berry, Amanda Joe Irvin and Kelly Paxton. And they do a fantastic job breaking down um, fraud cases that are in the news. The Elizabeth Holmes case has been brought up. Um, I don't know if this, I can't think of her name. Uh, Delvey is the last name, some new thing on Netflix. It's a true story. So I'm, I'm, mm. I'm looking forward to when they do that. I, I bring that up because the book literally just got here. My wife ordered it the other day. So it just like, I literally just, just opened it. So anyway, uh, if that's interest to you, be sure to check them out. I think it's every Friday at two central standard time. But with that said, uh, Rick, I know you've written for fraud magazine, um, already. And you have another article or story, I guess we could say coming out. And so I'm just interested to hear if, as much as you can um, talk us through that case. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I'm very excited about the new article that'll be coming out in July. Um, I haven't announced this really on social media yet, but I was asked uh, to speak uh, at the fraud conference coming up in Nashville in June as well. Um, and I gave them a couple of, you know, you know, particular titles to work with, and they picked the cybersecurity one, um, that I'm very excited about. Cause that's, that's top <laughs> foremost thing that's happening today as well. But, um, the case that I'm writing about, uh, for this, for the summer article really revolves around embezzlement and billing fraud. Um, and, you know, as the vendor auditor guy, I, you know, find billing fraud just fascinating. And when it's tied in with embezzlement, it's even more fascinating. You know, there's a, there's a study that came out in 2018 and they haven't updated it. And I have a theory about why they haven't, but Hiscox insurance company puts out this, uh, embezzlement, uh, study. Um, it came out in 16 and it came out in 18 and the facts are, and the statistics are phenomenal. But one of the things that they talk about is the most common methods uh, for embezzlement to kind of happen, the methodology, so to speak. And billing fraud is the number, number one um, way that's happened. And really that kind of comes about through, they say, inaccurate uh, internal reporting. Um, it comes through with, you know, fictitious vendors, 
um, as well, or you know, somehow increasing the spend of an invoice when it comes in as well. So there's a lot of interesting kind of facets to it. But the, the case that um, I was going to write about at first uh, had to do with the, the warehouser, the, uh, the timber company up in Oregon. Yeah. And there, uh, that recently came out and thought that was a, uh, Susan Tramberger is her name, thought that was a very interesting uh, case to write about. And I thought about it, um, but I, the one that I'm really kind of focused on, even through my presentation, is this case where this gentleman, his name is Stuart Kyle Williams. And he was a cattle broker. He worked for a, a company down in South Texas. He, his job as a cattle broker, you know, was very multifaceted, but really he was sort of the face to people that were buying uh, cattle. And um, he, you know, starts kind of do this sale uh, with another ranch and this first sale goes okay. The second sale goes eh, and the third sale goes horribly wrong where he uh, sells this company or this ranch uh, cows that are, some of them are dead or dying, no udders, barren, you know, the wrong color, et cetera. Um, and he ends up, you know, getting in trouble with this other ranch. The ranch that he was buying from stops doing business with him. But um, what this guy does is he kind of turns around and says, he doesn't tell his employer that the ranch stopped, stopped buying from them. So he pretends to be, he takes on this identity of this guy, of uh, this other ranch and starts to kind of purchase cows. Um, and the, the fraud really happens through sort of kind of collective, um, you know, this collective program that oil and gas companies are very used to doing. There's, you know, you have companies, oil companies that work together to purchase a singular property and they, you know, ha all have their different bills going in to the one property. Same thing happens in cattle where you have a, uh, a group of ranchers that are all kind of, you know, uh, putting in monies or land or veterinarian services or whatever. So that's what his, that's what his, the, the fraud is. He has his employer think that all of these different companies are putting all this money. So he sends, you know, fake invoices, fake purchase orders, and his employer starts sending him money um, and he gets caught. Okay, that's that's part of the story, but he's sort of a he he, he thinks that it's not over. So during pretrial release, he's out on bail. He decides to sort of do the same thing, but he takes it in the oil and gas business instead. So he uh, pretends to be a vendor. Uh, this one factoring company uh, starts sending him money to the tune of about twelve million dollars, and he gets caught through um, a. a theft of a hay bale situation and ends up going to prison for about 15 years. So he's there right now serving time. Very interesting case though. Double trouble is what I call it. Nice. Is that common that, that someone would repeat something like that? Yeah. It, it, well, it's interesting. The, the quote, let me see if I can find the quote here real quick. The, the attorney that was, uh, that was you know, trying it said, they say insanity is doing the same thing over and nice. over and expecting different results. Right, exactly. It's it's insanity for sure. It should have led insanity. <laughs> yeah, but one of the things that I kind of share through that presentation and will also come out in the in this article as well is that you know we're all familiar with the fraud triangle, right? Or most of us are should be, uh, where you have you know rationalization and you have the pressure and you have the opportunity, but 
one of the things that I, I'm, I always kind of think through is like these guys and these ladies are so smart that they're committing these crimes. Um, you know, why don't they use it, you know, put it to good use? Um, but they're very intelligent, very intelligent to go through all the different things. In 2004, uh, there was an article uh, that came out and it was these two researchers and they talked about this fourth piece you may be familiar with, capability. So they had, mm. it's now no longer a fraud triangle, it's the fraud diamond and capability is that last little piece where you have ego, you have you know, the ability to lie very well, you have the ability to coerce and uh, have others commit the fraud for you and you're just super intelligent. And I think that that fraud diamond is speaks so much better to, you know, why people commit fraud or how they're able to do it. So, cause I get the question all the time. I was at the stylist the other day, get my hair done. And, and, and I told the lady what I did, what I do. And she says, I just don't understand why they do this. And I gave her, gave her the, is, is there some narcissism in there? I, I, I think that is, it's ego, ego, definitely ego is part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus fascinating fraud diamond sounds way cooler than fraud square. I thought you were going to go like with a square, but that that's not as cool. Is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Cause that would be like, they're, they're geeky. They're nerdy, you know? So. Yeah. What's it, what are the, um, cause I know you have the audit background also, what do you feel like if they had a control in place would have prevented that? Well, I, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my presentations anytime it relates to like billing or vendor fraud is the fact is that I think a lot of people take their eyes off of, you know, billing fraud or even externally the vendor fraud mm -hmm. because uh, they've got so many other things to, you know, to, to, you know, to deal with. Take for example, in 2020, March, 2020, was anybody really thinking about vendor fraud? No, they were thinking about getting toilet paper, you know, and staying healthy. And, uh, but that didn't keep the fraudsters, you know, uh, away. They were, you know, uh, infiltrating, you know, Amazon with fake masks, et cetera. And then mm -hmm. take, for example, kind of like what's happening now with oil and gas. It's, you know, this morning it was $106 a barrel. Mm -hmm. That's frothy, you know, type of prices. And so now you have companies that like have gotten their mind off good controls and all they're thinking about is like, you know, drill baby drill type of yeah. thing. Um, you know, then you have the situation I think that really is, that's, I think it's very worrisome where you have companies or organizations that feel like their controls are in good shape. That like they, they, they can prevent anything, um, but yet they have accounts payable or operations doing the, the auditing uh, or doing the vendor auditing. You know, they'll say something like this, look, if we see a bad invoice come in, we're, we won't pay it. Like, you know, accounts payable job is not to audit. It's not to, to find fraud. Their job is to efficiently process payments. And there's quotas that some of these groups have that they've got to take care of. So if you're, you know, worried about processing 5,000 invoices, for example, how are you worried about fraud too? So any companies that, um, you know, try to mitigate billing fraud, um, whether it's, you know, done through internally through embezzlement or externally through a vendor. Um, if you don't have a good, you know, strong oversight uh, program in place, it, you really are just kind of, you know, setting yourself up for failure.
Because this this could happen all over again, right? I mean, I remember the stories of, you know, state governments, whichever governments it was buying, you know, $10 million worth of gloves or something like that. And they come, they're all used, they, you know, ripped, they're old, they can't, they can't be used. So I would think that with what's happening in the world today, it's another perfect opportunity mm-hmm. for companies to take their eye off that ball and be focused on oil prices and all those other things that are happening. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, you know, there's so many external things that are going on in our world today. You know, everybody's posting, you know, you know, blue and yellow flags and, and they should be, I mean, we should be concerned about what's happening, but you know, that's what happens. Uh, we, we forget our history, you know, audit history, so to speak. And we, you know, just take our eyes off the prize and what, what are, what are the things that we should be doing and have in play? So Hmm. Yeah. Very relevant. Yeah. Yeah. But I do have, I, I do have a thought and I brought it up earlier about why I think that the, you know, I, I mentioned the Hiscox yeah. uh, embezzlement yeah. study. It, it, it really is good. If you go to Hiscox.com and you go to the research page, you can go down and they actually have cybersecurity uh, awareness reports, but the embezzlement um, studies are great because, you know, it's colorful pages and good graphics, et cetera. But um I was just thinking about this as I was kind of, you know, working through some notes about today and, and thinking like, I can't wait to see, you know, hear the stats on what's happened with embezzlement in 2020. Mm-hmm. So go back to our March, 2020 talk a second ago, everybody went home, everybody took their laptop home. And one of the thing, one of the big uh, controls in place to prevent embezzlement is taking a vacation, you know, forcing people to take vacation. Mm-hmm. This forced people to, you know, really lose sight of what they had in, in place while they were at the office. And I wonder if, if we, we saw a spike, um, you know, in cases uh, because of they had to go home, they were forced to go home. So, oh, somebody said, what's the website again? Uh, Hiscox, H-I-S-C-O-X.com, Hiscox. I'll put that in the chat. Yeah, I yeah. appreciate that. I had, I had a, the same question. We'll put that in the uh, show notes also. I appreciate that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's interesting because it is, um, that is one of the things I guess you could look for relative to the data and our, who's not taking vacation. And in 2020, it was like, hey, you can't take vacation. You know, like you're not really allowed to go anywhere and you have your laptop anyway. So even if you take days off, you still have it. And so you could do uh, whatever. So that is interesting. So you're saying, those stats have not been updated since 2018 and you think yeah, it's they haven't time. been done. Yeah. I, I wrote them and just asked them if they were going to update it. I haven't heard anything back from them, but I, I just wonder if it's because, uh, you know, there's not a lot of studies that have been done because people have been displaced, so to speak from, mm-hmm. you know, and people left jobs, et cetera. So I don't know, but it will be curious to see if it's gone up, if more people have been caught, you know, or if it's status quo. But okay. it's a lot of money. We're talking, you know, back in 2017. Again, this is old stats, but 2017, um, I think they said there was about 50. I'm looking at the numbers here. About 50 billion dollars worth of uh, theft in the, you know, employer space um, through all types of ways. It's crazy. What would the average dollar value be, or is there is there one? Well. It, it, in terms of like embezzlement, again, I'll quote the Hiscox, they say it's about $357,000 per company, the cost of embezzlement. 
um, the, the fraud itself. So that's, you know, it's a high number. Be mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because when embezzlement doesn't start off with this big heist, it is small dollars. It's testing the waters to see if anything happens. And if nothing happens, then they, you know, get a little bit braver and they take a little bit more. Um, maybe they kind of come up with a new method of doing something, but it's small dollars and it gradually gets bigger um, because they get more comfortable with it. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times these embezzlement cases, they, um, well, the, 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 the fraud itself doesn't happen until about eight years into their person's employment. Um, wow. Susan Tranberg, the, the lady I was just referring to back there for Weyerhaeuser, um, she started working there in 1976 and didn't start embezzling from them until 2004. Mm. And she did it for about 14 years or so. And what was her motivation? Well, they said that it was, um, you know, these high-end weddings and vacations. And uh, if you talk, talk to Kelly Paxton, you know, pink collar crime, she says, and I believe it because you see it all the time, it's gambling, it's mm. gambling. You know, there was a, a, a nun recently um, that is, was, is going to prison um, because of her embezzlement uh, scheme. And it was all about gambling. She was taking money from the little school that she was the principal of and then using it and gambling it. Um, so that's big time. That's, that's, that's good to know as uh, the internal <laughs> audit profession is about to gather in Las Vegas for GAM um, and yeah. during March Madness of all times. So <laughs> one of the highest <laughs> gambling weeks of the year or weekends of the year. So that's interesting. Um all right. Well, we are up against it, uh, Rick. Thank you very much. That was you're like a. I feel like you've become like a professor of this now. I mean, just quoting resources and succinct, succinctly answering. And so it was uh, very, very well done. Thank you a lot uh, for that. Um, real quick, we again. This is the audit room on Zoom. We are live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. If you have questions, um, if you're in the audience, you can feel free to throw those in the chat. Join us again yeah. live every Tuesday, uh, 11 a.m. Chicago time. Um, that's it for me. Tracy, I'll throw it to you. And then Rick, if you want to close us out, that'd be great. Yeah, I just want to say, Rick, thank you so much. Really well explained. I feel like we could just keep talking uh, for a lot longer than we have planned. Um, and I am Tracy Marquardt, Europe's leading audit communication consultant. And listen, if you're interested in learning about gamified training, we do have a game that you can try cost-free. Um, this week it's crypto. So if you want to have a license for crypto, it's a short-term license, ping me or DM me and um, we'll get that for you to try out. And that includes you, Rick. If you want to give it a go and see what it's like, let me know and we'll get you that license. And I'll turn it over to you, Rick. Yeah, thank you so much, Tracy and Trent. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak. Um, you know, I'll just say this is that a lot of this, you know, facts that I, you know, are quoting, it's really about studying and always kind of keeping your mind sharp and reading about these cases, learning about it, teaching it so that way you kind of, you know, embed it in your brain. So it's just all about reading and studying. Okay.